Well, good morning, Grace Gospel Church. I first want to uh, address something that was uh, in the announcements of the new Bible study, home Bible study, starting in Fall River, taught by our brother Tommy Texera. I've talked with Tommy a couple times about this. Uh, the last time was yesterday. This is a subject he's chosen that will impact every one of us because every day we're engaged in spiritual warfare. I'm not going to give away what he's going to be teaching on, but he knows this subject matter very, very well. He shared with me a number of thoughts yesterday. It'll be informative. It'll be practical. And if you uh, can attend, I'm sure you'll be blessed and you'll be glad you attended. Tommy has a great grasp of the scriptures. Every elder writes an exam, objective and subjective, pastoral questions. And Tommy's exam blew me away. You would have thought he'd been halfway through seminary. He has a great depth of understanding, both theologically and practically, on the scriptures and the Christian life. We're going to begin today our study in the life of Moses. The theme of Moses' life is answering God's call. Remember when we studied Joseph, it was the sovereignty of God in the life of a person. Here the theme that you'll see throughout our study of Moses is answering God's call. <clears throat> this is applicable to every single one of us here this morning. If you're an unbeliever who's never trusted in Jesus Christ and his redemptive, saving work on the cross, then you also need to answer God's call. God's call for you is that you repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. There's only one gospel. Peter preached a gospel of repentance and faith towards God to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. He preached that same gospel in Acts 10 to the Gentiles, Cornelius and others. This is the gospel that Paul himself preached in Acts 17 to the to the uh, Greek philosophers, Gentile philosophers. He reminds the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 that he preached that same gospel everywhere, to everyone, to the Jews first and then to the Greeks or the Gentiles. In Acts 26, when he stands before King Agrippa, he tells King Agrippa that this is the gospel that he's preached, a gospel of repentance and faith in Messiah Jesus. He writes of this one gospel in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, to Timothy. He references repentance and faith in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He preached the same gospel everywhere. In Ephesians 4, he tells the Ephesians that there is one body and one spirit and one hope of your calling, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father, over all, who is through all and in all. There is only one gospel, and it's the gospel that's preached here at Grace Gospel Church, the only gospel that will ever save your soul and allow you to spend eternity in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a believer today, 
You've already responded to the gospel call. But there is also a call of service on the life of every true believer in Christ. What that service looks like will differ for every one of us. The Holy Spirit has placed us in the body of Christ exactly as he chose. May not be the way we wanted, but it's the way he chose to place us and gift us for service, for God's glory and the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ and the building up of one another. Now, this is the third character study we've done. And I want to repeat a couple of key points because we have a lot of new people here and if you're at all like me, you need to hear things more than once. Ask my wife. Some things, after over 40 years of marriage, I still don't have down yet. She doesn't nag. She just reminds me lovingly because she knows what's best for me and for our marriage. So I'm going to remind you of a couple things. Character studies are so popular. We love them. But I will tell you the vast majority of the time, character studies are done wrong. How so? They focus on the man or woman of Scripture. That's secondary. That is not the primary focus of any character study. The primary focus is on God or Christ, depending on what passage of Scripture the character is found in. It's how God and Christ act in the life of a person. The Bible is God's story. It's not the story of you and I. It's not the story of the characters in it. We all play a part in God's story. From Genesis to Revelation, this is God's story of what he did in the past, what he's doing now in the church age, and what he will do in Jesus Christ when he comes again, sets up his kingdom, and then throughout eternity. It is God's story. We are blessed to play a part in it. Sure, we can learn from the successes and failures, from the actions and the disobedience of the characters. But what's more important is how God related to those characters and what he did in response to, both leading up and in response to, the decisions, the actions, the words of those characters. So just like with Abraham and Joseph, the life of Moses is about God working in the life of Moses and how God brought about Moses to answer his call. Moses' life is divided into three parts. Chapters 1 and 2, which we'll look at most of chapter 2 or half of chapter 2 today, has to do with preparation for God's call. Chapters 3 through half of chapter 4 is the call itself to Moses when he was 80 years old. And then the rest of it, the last half of chapter 4 through the end of Deuteronomy, has to do with Moses actually answering God's call. We're not going to look at every chapter we're focusing on, for the most part, the life of Moses, what he did. So we're going to be avoiding certain parts, which are important, like the law itself, because it's more what God told Moses. 
will avoid the uh, building of the tabernacle because, again, Moses only conveyed that information. He didn't do anything. Other works, workmen did the work. So it's still going to take us probably through June of next year, and then maybe we'll start summer psalms. I think of Moses as the Peter of the Old Testament. Of all of Christ's disciples, the ones you and I seem to, the one you and I seem to relate to the best is Peter, impetuous Peter. All these great intentions and desire, fire for God burning in his belly. And how often does he stick his foot in his mouth? How does he think he knows better than the Lord? Not so, Lord. This isn't going to happen. We relate to him. We relate to his desire to be with the Lord. Call to me and I'll come to you on the waves. He had this great heart, but it, sometimes it wasn't always a success. If you can relate to Peter, you will relate to Moses even more. When we studied Abraham and Joseph, we related to certain incidences, incidents in the life of Abraham and Joseph. But when it comes to Moses, we're not going to relate to the incidents of his life. We're going to relate to his person, his character, what he's like. And so every one of these messages that David Gilson and I and possibly one other brother will preach will reveal Moses' character that we can relate to. Let me try to prove that to you for a moment. And you can raise your hand if you want. You might want to keep it up the whole time if you're able to, because if you're like me, for all 15 of these, my hand's going to go up. Has anyone here ever been angry? Okay. Has anyone here ever experienced the consequences of their anger? Has anyone here ever shirked or wanted to shirk a responsibility in their life? Has anyone here ever been plain old lazy? My father called me a lounge lizard, okay? I think I know what that is, lazy. Has anyone here ever taken credit, in whole or in part, for something that someone else did? Has anyone here ever complained or grumbled to another person about something in their life? You can relate to Moses. Has anyone ever complained to God about something that he allowed in their life? I resemble that comment. Has anyone not done something that they felt God wanted them to do? Okay. Has anyone ever made excuses for not wanting to serve God? Has anyone ever displayed sinful pride in their life? Has anyone ever been humbled by God for that pride? 
Has, have any of you ever been misjudged by another person? Where they judge your hidden, unseen heart motives. And they just think the worst of you instead of the best. Has that ever happened to you? Have your best efforts to serve God and to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ, a family member, people at work, wherever, have your efforts ever been rejected? Have you ever wished to be part of something bigger and greater than where God has you right now? Something greater, something bigger, something thriving, something alive, something growing by leaps and bounds where you're in awe of it. Has that ever been you? Have you ever, and this is the last one, have you ever longed for a special blessing from God that he hasn't given you and that he may never give you? Has that ever been you? Okay, I can raise my hand to all 15. Every one of these we will find at some point in the life of Moses. He's very relatable. Moses has been called, I didn't make this up, but it's true, I recognize it as true, has been called a man with a heart of gold toward God, but with feet of clay. We talked about his feet of clay, 15 different things but he had a heart of gold as well. Moses, according to the scriptures, was a man of great faith. By faith, Moses, this is his parents' faith, was hidden for three months by his parents because they were not afraid of Pharaoh's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill-treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Why? Because he was looking to a future eternal reward. He considered the reproach of Christ. See, it's not just the promised land here. This is eternity he was focused on. The reproach of Christ to be greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. He was looking to that reward found in Christ. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was unseen, Christ. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that he who destroyed, the destroying angel, he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith. Now here, Moses' faith influenced the nation of Israel. May our faith influence someone else. God forbid that the Christian life you and I lead never influences another person to follow harder, faster, stronger, more consistently after Jesus Christ. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea 
as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Moses was not only a man of faith, he was a humble man. Now, the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Moses was a humble man. But it was God who humbled him because he didn't start out as a humble man, as we'll see. This message is going to have two parts to it. I'm going to have to move quickly. It's going to be a summary of Moses' life followed by a short sermon on Exodus chapters 1 and 2. Instead of me giving you a summary of Moses' life, do you realize God gave an inspired summary of Moses' life through the deacon and evangelist Stephen when he stood before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7 and he gives his testimony and then he becomes the first Christian martyr being stoned to death? He gives an inspired summary of Moses' life. So let's look at Stephen's summary, the Holy Spirit speaking through Stephen, through the pen of Luke, recording Stephen's words. Let's look at the summary of Moses' life that God gives in the Scriptures in Acts chapter 7. Moses lived to be 120 years old. He would have lived longer but because God was judging him for sin, he died at the age of 120, just before the second generation born in the wilderness, over the last 40 years of Moses' life, just before they entered the promised land. Because of his sin, God told Moses, you will see the promised land, but you will not enter it. And what the scripture says is Moses died at the age of 120, and his eye was not dim, nothing wrong with his vision. He had the vision of a young person. His eye was not dim, nor his vitality, his strength abated or weakened or less. He still had all the vigor needed to go into that promised land. Moses' life, God ordained it to be neatly divided into three 40-year periods. The first 40 years is the preparation for God's calling. The second 40 years involves a second phase of preparation and the call of God. And then the last 40 years has Moses answering God's call. So let's look at this quickly. In verse 17, as the time of the promise was approaching, I need to point this out. These stories... In Scripture, and by stories, I mean true stories, not fiction. This isn't the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings or anything else. This is true historical narrative. These are true stories, nonfiction, not fiction. As the time of the promise was approaching, Moses' life is not separated from Joseph or Abraham or the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, or creation. It is all part of God's plan. This is the promise that uh, was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, that through you, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. In 
the descendant of Abraham, Messiah, Messiah Jesus, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. This time was approaching. When we read the scriptures, look to see how that passage fits in with the unfolding drama of redemption. This is God's story, how he is going to redeem his sinful creature created in his image. As the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. Remember, in Joseph's day, he saved the nation of Egypt, all the surrounding nations, and even the family of his father, Jacob. Seventy of them moved down to Egypt to avoid the seven years of famine that would have starved them. Pharaoh was indebted to Joseph. When Joseph spoke, the scripture says it was like Pharaoh spoke. That was the power that he had. It was he, the Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, who mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. At this time, Moses was born. He was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. After he'd been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. He was a man of power in word and deeds. Remember that. He was powerful in words. This gives some insight into his character when he says, oh God, I can't go back. You can't send me back. I'm slow of speech. He's a man of power in words and deeds. When he was approaching the age of 40, so at the end of his first 40 years, he was raised in, as the daughter of, uh, as the son of the daughter of Pharaoh. He, he was exposed to every good thing the Egyptian empire, the Egyptian dynasty at that time had to offer. He was raised in a palace. He never experienced hunger. He never experienced poverty. He never experienced many of the things that his fellow Jews experienced. But, because his mother raised him for a few years, initially three months, and we'll see how it becomes a few years, there was a seed his blessed mother planted in him that even though he was raised to think like an Egyptian, act like an Egyptian, still, there was something planted in him by his mother's nurturing. Remember, she nurtured him. That it couldn't escape. It couldn't be brainwashed out of him by the false gods of Egypt, by all this great learning that he had learned that entered his mind and polluted it from the pure faith and belief in Yahweh, the one true creator God of heaven and earth. It entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel, when he saw them being treated unjustly, he defended them and took vengeance by striking down, by murdering an Egyptian. 
This is what's in Moses' mind, according to the Holy Spirit speaking through Stephen, prophetic words through Stephen. He supposed, this was his own thinking on this, he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they didn't understand. He had this idea to be a deliverer, a redeemer, elevate the status of his people. He was right. God was going to do that, but he was not going to do it Moses' way. He was going to do it his own way. The next day, Moses appeared to the Jews, some Jews, as they were fighting together. He tried to reconcile them. He tried to make peace, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you injure one another? The one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? This ends the first 40 years of Moses' life, and we come to the middle 40 years. What does Moses do in response to that? Oh, wow. People know. I thought I murdered that Egyptian in secret. But it's known. It's going to get around. Pharaoh's going to hear of it. I'm going to be in a lot of trouble for killing an Egyptian. He realizes being the son of Pharaoh's daughter is not going to save him. What does he do? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian. He goes to another land. He doesn't just go there where he became the father of two sons. He decided, I'm giving up serving the Lord. I'm going to go where it's safe and comfy. And he makes a life for himself there. He even has sons. He has children. He's planning to live there. He gave up on his dream of being a deliverer for his people. But God never gave up. God never gives up on any one of us, even if we give up a dream that we have of serving him. He will not give up on any of his children. After 40 years had passed, 40 years tending sheep, he was a shepherd. Think about this. From a palace every night to the cold at some times of the year of shepherding sheep out in the wilderness. From a palace to some sort of hut when he went back to home. Totally changed his life from a life of privilege to a life of hardship and toil. And now he's 80 years old. After 40 more years had passed, an angel, a messenger, appeared to him in the wilderness in the flame of the burning bush. Whenever we read about the angel here, in the life of Moses, this is the angel of the Lord. We will see when Exodus 3 is preached that this angel says, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is an appearance of God. It's not an appearance of Michael or Gabriel or some other angel. This is the appearance of God. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
An angel appeared to him in the wilderness in the flame of the burning bush. When Moses saw it, he approached to look more closely. There came the voice of the Lord. Not the voice of an angel, the voice of the Lord. He says, I am. This angel says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. This is his response. It's very similar to Isaiah's. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. Moses knew where he stood with God in and of himself. He had no right to be in God's presence. The Lord said to him, take the sandals from your feet, for the place which you are standing is holy ground. Get this. Pharaoh, Pharaoh's son, very possibly Moses, when they would walk out of the passage, uh, out of the palace, even onto like paths, stone paths, grown men, slaves, would lay down and they would walk on the backs of grown men so that they do not dirty the soles of their sandals. And God says, the soles of your sandals are dirty. You were referencing Moses' lot in life his first 40 years. They're not clean. They're as dirty as any slave in Egypt. A real wake-up call for him. Have you ever been in a situation, a circumstance, a trial in life, and you pray and pray, and you don't think God is hearing you? The Egyptians tormented the people of Israel. In the passage of Scripture, our brother Joe read for us. God does see what his people went through. He sees what you and I go through. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans. God sees what we go through. God hears our prayers. He hears our cries. He hears our sobs. He does. But he answers on his timetable because his timetable is best. God says, I have come down. That's the angel of the Lord. God himself in the burning bush. He came down from heaven. For what purpose? To rescue them. God, can re God rescued them in the most unimaginable way. He can rescue you and I from any trial, in any way he chooses. And here is the call that Moses is going to answer. Come now. Come now. God says to everyone, come now. And let us reason together, saith the Lord. If you're unsaved, the scripture goes on to say, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be as crimson, they will be like white wool. Come now, believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross bearing the sins of the world. 
If you're a believer in Christ, this call to Moses to serve his God, his Lord, is a call to you and I as well. Come now. Come now. I will send you to do something for me. For Moses, it was back. I, come now. Oh, that sounds good. I can approach. I had to take off my sandals, but I can approach. Come now. And I will send you. Oh, yeah. I am so tired of these 40 years in the wilderness in Median. Send me, send me to Egypt. What? Back to Egypt. I'm a dead man. This is not the word he wanted to hear. He wanted to hear something nicer. But it was back to Egypt, the very place he had left 40 years earlier, left in fear. This Moses, whom they disowned, what? Who made you a judge or ruler over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, who made you a ruler or a judge, is the one whom God sent to be. See, it's on God's time. According to God's plan, Moses would be a deliverer. He'll lead the people out from the house of slavery, the house of bondage in Egypt. God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer, but he didn't do it on his own. All those great miracles, a ruler and deliverer with the help of the angel, Not just any angel, but the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. The Lord God himself. Anything God wants you and I to do for him, he will be with us. The prophet Zechariah says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. That's how you and I will become more like Christ. That's how we will serve our Lord and God in the power of the Holy Spirit with the help of the angel, the Holy Spirit who appeared to him in the thorn bush, the Holy Spirit who indwells us. We now come after this call, come now to the last 40 years of Moses' life. This man, Moses, led them out of Egypt performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. Here's the last 40 years. Three times 40 years has been mentioned, dividing Moses' 120 years up evenly into three 40-year periods. God's able to do that. He did it in this case. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. That's recorded in Deuteronomy 18.18. Every Jew, even in Christ's day, understood that to be a reference to Messiah. Messiah would be a ruler like Moses was. He's the king of kings. He'd be a far greater ruler. He'd be a prophet. He would speak the words of God. Christ said, all that the Father uh, has given me, I have spoken. I have taught. He only says that which he hears from the Father. Moses was a redeemer, a deliverer of the Jews from Egypt. Christ is a redeemer of all mankind. 
who place their faith and trust in what he did on the cross. This is why Christ is a prophet like Moses. They have similarities in that way, although Christ is infinitely greater than Moses. The one, Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai. God didn't leave him. He didn't just speak to him on the burning bush and kick him out. He's not like a mother bird who eventually sends her, her young little chicks out of the nest. God went with him back to Egypt. God stayed with him as they left Egypt and they traveled to the wilderness of Sinai and Moses went up on Mount Sinai. The same angel, God is always with him. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Moses received living oracles to pass on to you. He wrote the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. What he wasn't alive for, God told him what to write. To put the life of Moses in perspective with secular history, the exodus out of Egypt occurred around 1,453 years B.C. So about 1,450 years before Christ was born. That's the exodus from Egypt. Now get this. This great leader that God used and worked through to bring them out of Egypt, what does Stephen then say? Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but rejected him. Remember, 40 years earlier, who made you a ruler or judge over us? Are you going to kill me? They're still rejecting him. 40 years later, and in the last 40 years in the wilderness, not just others who wanted to take his place, his own older brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam. They rejected him, and in their hearts, the Jews that he led out, in their hearts turned back to Egypt. He understood rejection. If you've ever been rejected, you'll be able to relate to Moses. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony, where the presence of God dwelt in their midst, in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make. God gave Moses instructions for making that tabernacle. And that tabernacle was the heart and soul of Judaism, of the Jewish faith, of the nation of Israel. When the tabernacle was replaced with Solomon's temple, God's presence dwelt in the holy of holy place in Solomon's temple. So precious was this, the presence of God in their midst, that they brought the tabernacle into the promised land with them under Joshua because Moses was forbidden because of his sin of anger and taking credit for what God did, Moses, and disobedience to God's clear instruction, Moses was told, you'll never enter the promised land. You'll see it, but you're not going to cross over into it. And so they took the presence of God with them into the promised land. Brothers and sisters, there is no promised land in your life or mine or in the future without the presence of God. 
in you without Jesus Christ living in you through the person of his Holy Spirit. We're going to look at the preparation for answering God's call this morning and Lord willing next week. Two messages. Our brother Gilson, Lord willing, will deliver the message next week. The title of today's message is God Sovereignly Works His Plan. In this passage, remember, character studies are about God. In this passage, God is revealed as sovereignly in control at every step in his eternal plan, and he blesses those who fear him. Remember, fear is a Hebrew idiom, a Hebrew phrase for obedience to God. When you fear God, you obey God. We've covered that before. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. If you have questions on why that is so, I can show you afterwards from the Scriptures. You don't have to take my word for it. If you take away only one thing from today's message, let it be this. God is working out His plan for your life, and He started doing this even before you were born, just like He did in the life of Moses. We're going to look at this, uh, this message in two parts, chapter 1 and chapter 2. God was at work even before you were born. God was at work even in the circumstances of your birth. God, why was I born into this family? Why was I born to this parent, to, to my parents instead of to parents who were millionaires? God is at work before you were born and in the circumstances of your birth. God, why was I born this way? Why couldn't I have been born different? God was at work then as well. God was at work before you were born. Four things we want to make note of with that. God's eternal plan is opposed by the enemies of God. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely. No, wise according to them, not according to God's wisdom. They did any, everything but deal kindly or wisely or biblically to the children of Israel. They didn't deal with the children of Israel as God would. That wisely, we need to understand it, in line with Pharaoh's thinking. Or else, and he explains his thinking, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. He had no clue about the people of God. The people of God never joined themselves to the world. Egypt and Pharaoh are a picture of the world in Scripture. The Christian never joins himself to the world. Oh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, that's human wisdom. The enemy of my enemy is still God's enemy. The Christian never joins himself to the world. He didn't understand that. Paul says something very similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The spiritual man appraises, evaluates, discerns all things, but he himself is appraised or evaluated or discerned by no one. 
Those who are not spiritually minded, they don't understand what makes the Christian tick. They don't understand, ladies, why you aren't primarily concerned with your external appearance or having the best home that you could possibly have, why you don't run out and get different things for your home. Brothers, they don't understand what makes you tick. Why aren't you climbing the corporate ladder? Why aren't you working more hours and neglecting your family so you can have more money? Just think of the pickup truck or the boat you can buy. They don't understand what makes the Christian tick. Their value system is totally different. Wise in their eyes, foolish in God's eyes. Christ said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? God's eternal plan is opposed by the enemies of God. The enemies of God don't understand the Christian. The Christian never joins himself with the enemies of God. God's eternal plan, we don't want to hear this, but it's true, sometimes includes harsh trials. So they, the Egyptians, appointed taskmasters over them, not to help them, not to guide them, to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities. This is all the world wants from the Christian, for the Christian to be a slave. They don't think of what's best for God or for the Christian. The world is not your friend. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities. The Egyptians compelled, they forced the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. And they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and had all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. God allows harsh trials. There's a reason for it. We get this from the cross. God did not spare his own son from the harshest trial, his own holy judgment upon his son, from the harshest trial any human ever went through. He didn't spare his son. He could have. He did not have to save any of us. He did not have to give his son for us. For God so loved the world. Why? Paul says, if while we were enemies, God made peace through the blood and cross of his son. God allows harsh trials. We're focused on here and now in the trial. God's focused on eternity. If there was no crown for Christ without the cross, there is no eternal reward for you and I without the suffering of this life. For some people, that's greater suffering. For others, it's less. God's eternal plan allowed for unimaginable evil. The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, and he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women give birth and see them upon, upon the birth stool, if it is a son, when you take that baby that was just born, from between the mother's legs, and you lay it on the birth stool. Nowadays, it's a table with wheels in case they have to rush the newborn to the NICU because there's something wrong. Here it was a stool. If it is a son, then you shall put him to death. When is it ever right 
to murder an innocent, someone who's innocent. It's never right. It's unimaginable evil to murder someone who is innocent. We all had a hand in doing that. It was our sins that nailed the blameless and innocent and spotless Son of God to the cross. God has allowed unimaginable evil. He allowed the fall in Genesis 3 of Adam and Eve. Why did he do that? Look, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. There are very good answers for that. There are things about God that you and I would never know if God did not allow unimaginable evil in the world. We would never understand God's holiness and God's justice. That's two things. And God's grace. There's three things. Grace, undeserved kindness. We didn't deserve his only begotten son and his salvation. We didn't earn it or work for it. His holiness, his justice, his grace, his boundless, infinite love for God so loved the world. Not just the world. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's how much he loves you. He gave his only begotten Son. This is why he allowed unimaginable evil. God's eternal plan blesses those who obey him. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt, as Pharaoh had commanded them, but let the boys live. And what was the result? So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. That includes or specifically aimed at the Jews, the Israelites. He couldn't sway these midwives. These women were more righteous and holy than anyone else. He knew who they were because he spoke to them. Yet they were willing to risk their lives not to put a child to death. And God blessed them for it. He was good to them. So what Pharaoh does is he says, I'm going to command all the parents, fathers and mothers, you are all responsible now to put your sons to death. But you can keep the daughters alive. And how are they to put them to death? Throw them into the Nile. Either a crocodile would get them or they would drown. That's what he wanted all the parents to do. But God blesses those who obey him. We're going to see how God blessed Moses' mother in a minute. So this is how God was at work even before you were born, orchestrating everything that would come to pass at the time that you were born. God is at work even in the circumstances of your birth. God's eternal plan doesn't just focus on nations, doesn't just focus on the church as a whole. It focuses on individuals too. Now, a man, 
from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. It's focusing on individuals now. God is concerned not with this, just with his people as a whole. He's concerned with every one of us. And when she saw that he, the baby boy, was beautiful, he hid him for three months. It's a little quieter, easier to calm him down. Give him some milk, and he'll calm him down. His cry isn't as loud. But when she could hide him no longer, at three months, she got him a wicker basket and covered it with tar and pitch so it wouldn't sink right away. She didn't want to drown her son. She knew if she kept him, he'd be found out. Three months old, he's being tossed in the Nile by one of Pharaoh's soldiers. Then she put the child into the wicker basket and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. God's plan focuses on you for your good, just like he did for Moses' good. God's eternal plan reveals his sovereignty. Look at what happened. Think about this. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. Of all the tens of thousands of Egyptian women in that area who could have come down to the Nile to bathe like they all did, it's the daughter of Pharaoh. Is that coincidence or the sovereign plan of God? It's the sovereign plan of God. She was with her maidens walking alongside the Nile and she saw the basket among the reeds. You know, that's pretty interesting too because this wicker basket made of reeds with tar, it probably didn't stand out real well. But she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child, Moses, and behold, the boy was crying. God revealed his sovereignty here of all the women. He can exercise the same sovereignty in your life and mine to bring about circumstances that we couldn't imagine. He can deliver us from death like he delivered Moses from death any way he wants. Even the enemy of God's people can be used by him, the daughter of Pharaoh, even the enemy of God's people in your life and mine can be used by him to save us. There is nothing that God cannot do. Proverbs 21.1, the heart of the king is like channels of water, little irrigation channels that a gardener would put his hand in or place a stone in to direct water to a different part of the garden. The heart of the king is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. As easy as it is to turn a small irrigation channel with your hand or with a stone, God can do that with even the heart of a king. And he did it with Pharaoh's daughter. Not only was she there, but she knew the consequences. She was going to disobey her father's command could have meant her death as well. This is the sovereignty, the power of our God. God's eternal plan can move anyone to do his will. She had pity on Moses, 
and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. How did she know? She checked. He was circumcised. The Egyptians did circumcise, but differently. They didn't remove the entire foreskin. Genesis 17, God gave the covenant of circumcision to Abraham. On the eighth day, every male was to be circumcised. It's not just the Mosaic law. It goes way back <clears throat> six, 800 years earlier to the life of Abraham. 400 years earlier. Sorry, I'm forgetting the time there. This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go ahead. So Miriam went and called Moses' mother. Wow. Unbelievable. She did what was right. Yochaved did what was right and would not cast her son into the Nile to drown or be eaten by a crocodile. And what happened? God blessed her, gave her son back to her. Can you imagine? I'm not mothers. You, 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 those of you who have been mothers, you can teach me. You can teach anyone who hasn't been a mother here. How would that pull at your heart to give up your baby, even for adoption? It must break the heart of a mother. Can you imagine what she was going through? And yet God gave Moses back to her. He moved the daughter of Pharaoh to do his will. He had always planned for Moses to be a redeemer, his way, a deliverer, his way, a prophet, giving God's word to his people, his way, not Moses' way, and he used the daughter of Pharaoh to do it. Unbelievable. He can move anyone to do his will. God's eternal, and this is the last slide, God's eternal plan includes blessing, difficult decisions, and reminders of his sovereignty. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. She says that to Jochebed, Moses' mother. Not only does she get her child back, she gets wages on top of it. Unbelievable. Our God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that which we ask or think, Paul writes to the Ephesians. It's true. Here's one example of it. She would have done it without wages. Her righteousness brings reward. The money, she didn't care about that. She got her baby boy back. For how long? two, three years, maybe up to five. Some Old Testament scholars think maybe he was weaned around five. They get that from Samuel, from some of the description of Samuel as a young child being brought back to Eli, the high priest, by his mother, Hannah. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's. Think about this for a minute. She knew she had to bring him back or they'd come looking for him, and then there'd be consequences, not for him, but for her. She brought the child back, not once in her life, but twice she lost her son. How that would crush a mother's heart. Yet her faith in God was so strong that she did this. This is unimaginable to me. 
even as a father. How much more a mother? I can't fathom this. God's not cruel, but he allowed her to go through the same pain twice. And I'd like to suggest it was probably greater the second time. It wasn't just three months. It was a few years. And she nurtured that child. Her heart grew closer to that child. And she brought him, Moses, to Pharaoh's daughter. This was a difficult decision. God doesn't spare us from the difficult decisions, but he gives us the strength to make them, to do what is right. And he, Moses, became Pharaoh's daughter's son, became her son. And Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses, Moshe in Hebrew, and said, because I drew him out of the water. Moshe in Hebrew means a drawing out or to draw out. Moses had a daily reminder as he grew older every single day that he was drawn out of the water, out of the waters of death, into life by the sovereign plan of God. Brothers and sisters, every single day we need to remember God has drawn us out of death into life. Ephesians 2 He transferred us. He translated us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what he's done for us. Let us remember every day we were drawn out like Moses from the waters of death. And that's what the water baptism we have symbolizes. That we died with Christ when we go under the waters. And that we're raised to walk in newness of life. Like Moses, we have been drawn out of the waters of death into life eternal. I came that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly, Jesus Christ said. Let me pray. Father, how amazing you are. How incredible you are. Oh, dear God. We thank you and we recognize that everything that has happened in our life is part of your eternal sovereign plan for us. And there is nothing better than your plan. Dear God, we praise you for it. Help us to live in light of what you have done even before we were born and in the circumstances of our birth. Help us to live every day as if we have been drawn out of the waters of death to live a life that glorifies you. We thank you for all your goodness, your infinite grace, mercy, and love toward us. We thank you. We praise you. Amen.